Welcome to Coming from Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummings. Unfortunately, the United States tends to support campaigns of political repression and state terror in Central and South America. Assassinations, coups, and political meddling are our game plan if it would result in installing a friendly, pro-neoliberal government with whom we could do business. But in the past few years, a wave of progressive politicians have been elected across Latin America. Described as the pink tide, there appears to be a hard turn to the left. What's going on? Let's discuss with Dan Kavalik. Well, warm greetings. And now we have a friend of the show. This is your second time, Dan. So that makes you officially a friend of the show, uh, coming from left field. And I'm so looking forward to chatting with you about your travels and your writings and so forth in Central and Central America, Latin America. And I, I'll, I'll let me give you a little introduction. You were a graduate of Columbia Law School and spent a good portion of your time as the general legal counselor for um, United Steelworkers, AFL-CIO. So you you got your you got your chops uh, representing the union, and you are a prolific writer. Um, I, you, you write a book a year. I, I don't know. Do you do you do you have like a a college buddy with Adderall that keeps you know keeping you up at night or something? Your your books always have a good plot. But I, let me just go through some of the ones: uh, plot to scapegoat Russia, plot to attack Iran. Uh, I've read um, I've read this one, the plot to control the world, uh, which is um, U.S. spending billions to influence elections and mingle uh, or interfere around the world. This one was very good. Just finished this one last week, the plot to overthrow Venezuela, and I really want to chat with you about Venezuela and some of your work with that. Um, no more wars again about how we kind of meddle if you will in international affairs uh and we had you on with this book plot to uh, cancel this book how, how's that book how'd that book go you're Good. Uh, you know it did pretty well uh you know all did pretty well you know none of them are bestsellers of course but they all you know did did modestly well i'm I, i'm very happy with it Good. so and we don't have this book i made a cover just to show people this book is going to be coming out in probably january you finished this book is it, it uh, you all all done with it nicaragua yeah, pretty much done and just waiting to be printed and published again it is scheduled for january 2023 and i think it will it'll be out by then Good. so well you are an absolute expert on central and latin america i, I think that's not an overstatement at all and they, they call him many people call him the john reed of latin america john reed but well yeah. and i think I, I i showed you this before we started that is your uh, che guevara uh uh portrait on my uh ink print uh t-shirt so um I'll, uh, I'll wear this once and then send it on to you and you can have your way with it. So have some fun with it. So thank you. Tell me what's, uh, what, what's, what's go, what's, what's going on. Uh, what's going on with um, the pink tide? Yeah. Well, I think what's happening is frankly, Latin America, the people are simply finally, getting to direct the region in the way they've always wanted to. I mean, you know, uh, the U.S. has essentially for the last over 100 years been playing whack-a-mole essentially in Latin America, right? Every time a leftist or progressive government pops up, the U.S. has oftentimes managed to overthrow that government through various ways, through covert action, through military coups what have you. Uh, and at some point, the U.S. just, you know, that was going to just be impossible. Uh, it it, it would have, the success, long-term success would have depended on the people of Latin America giving up, and they just haven't given up. 
And so the U.S. finds itself in a position where one country after another is moving to the left in some form or another. And again, what does that mean? I mean, you have these societies that have historically, first of all, been colonialized by Spain 500 years ago, you know, which killed many indigenous people, forced many to convert to Catholicism, brought in slaves to various of these countries. And then just as, again, they thought, oh, hey, we've overthrown Spain and we're good to go. The U.S. then really took over for Spain as the colonial power, which was really what the Spanish-American War was about in 1898. You know, we're told in school, of course, that that was about the U.S., well, one, reacting to Spain because they allegedly sank the ship called the Maine, though I think there's good evidence it just exploded from within for one reason or another, and they used it as a pretext. But the other thing we're told is that we went and liberated these countries like Cuba, Puerto Rico, the Philippines from Spain. And in fact, nothing could be further from the truth. We, in fact, simply became, we exchanged ourselves as the colonial power uh, in lieu of Spain. And in the case of Cuba, for example, it was about two thirds liberated by that point. I mean, it was ready to throw off Spanish colonialism by itself. And we came in and we just took over and through the Pratt, uh, the uh, Pratt Amendment, Platt Amendment uh, took over Cuba. And again, we could go down the line and how many other countries we did that to over the years. And so now we see finally the U.S.'s ability to keep these countries in tow, it's diminishing. And I, I think we have to thank the Latin American people for that. I mean, you just see this incredible resilience. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I don't know where to start. Um, well, we could start at Colombia. Colombia is a great place to start, I think. But- okay, all right, that's a good thing. And we are. Uh, um, tell me about. Tell me about this. Yeah. So what happened? I, you know, that's my friend Gustavo Petro. Uh, I met him when he was a senator. In Colombia, he's a very important historical figure there. He was a guerrilla in the M-19 guerrillas, uh, a leftist guerrilla group that waged um, an insurrectional war against uh, the government for some time. And they then put down their arms, signed a peace accord. This allowed Petro to run for office. He became a senator. Uh, as during his time in Senate, he was most famous for exposing the parapolitical scandal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is the scandal in which, you know, showing that huge numbers of politicians in Colombia were ensconced with the paramilitaries. He also opposed the free trade agreement, which is something that he and I and the steelworkers actually worked together on trying to oppose and were successful for some time. He then was became mayor of Bogota, which is, you know, the biggest city in Colombia. That, 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 and and Colombia is big. Colombia is the, what, the third biggest Latin America country. I mean, there's a lot of people there. It's 50, over 50 million people. Yeah, that's a it, lot. Yeah. yeah. It has 100 indigenous groups. It has the third largest number of Afro descendants in the hemisphere at, at over 6 million. A lot of people don't realize that. Cali, Colombia is the largest Spanish-speaking Afro-Colombian city uh, in the hemisphere. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's a fascinating place. It has, you know, and of course, it's very rich in resources. It has a Pacific coast, Atlantic coast, has oil, gold, emeralds, fresh water, which has made it very... You know, I think it's Galliano, Eduardo Galliano, who talked about the resource curse, you know, because they have these resources. The U.S. has coveted control over it and has managed to pretty much control it uh, really since about 1903 with the, of course, uh, Roosevelt's um, uh, military uh, conquest of Panama, breaking that off from Colombia, creating the canal. And uh, the U.S. has had a lot of control uh, since that time. Uh, one of the high watermarks in that country after the Panama 
the breaking away of Panama from Colombia was in 1948, a leftist president named Jorge Gaitan was running for president. He was very popular, looked like he was going to win, and he was assassinated. Many think by the CIA, though that is yet to be proven and not admitted to yet by the CIA. You know, eventually they tend to admit things. They've never, we don't know what the, the, the actual truth. We know the CIA had operatives there. Uh, we know that the U.S. was against Guy Tam, but we don't know. But in any case, he was assassinated. And this led to La Violencia, in which 300,000 Colombians were killed in a civil war between the liberal and conservative party. Now, Guy Tan's an interesting and important figure to talk about because Pe Gustavo Petro is the first real leftist candidate to even seriously run for office since 1948, you know, and have a chance of winning. Obviously, others ran, and but little parties and whatnot. This was the first time you had a real leftist who could contest power and who actually won. I mean, that's an incredible... Well, he he ran against uh, TikTok Trump, um, you know the uh, Hernandez, the, uh, the 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 fellow said that how so how much he respected Adolf his Hitler, uh, right. as a philosopher, and then he said, oh wait a second, that was a Freudian slip. It was actually uh, Einstein. I met that wasn't uh, you yeah. know it, of course it was Hitler, and right. he he just seems like an absolute horrible uh, horrible person. Um, I don't know. How, how bad is he I, on a no, Trump well, on a Trump scale? How bad is he? Well, bad, worse than Trump. I mean, the, you know, <laughs> in this country, of course, we talk about Trump as a fascist and other people's fascists. I'm not sure that's a fair category of those people. I think it is a fa fair category of the right wing in in Colombia, which, you know, has used death squads these paramilitary groups to carry out massacres, mass killings of the population, displacement of the population. Colombia is one of the highest internally displaced populations on earth. At the high water mark, they had about 8 million internally displaced people. That's out of 50 million, right? You're approaching yeah, yeah. Yeah. population. Yeah. At this point, the last figure I saw was 5 million, but that's huge. That's 10% of the population. Meanwhile, you have 6 million Colombians living in Venezuela. 6 million Colombians have migrated to Venezuela over the years. And that's in a country of about 30 million. So one-fifth of Venezuela are Colombians. And most of them were given citizenship and whatnot. So this is a country that has been, you know, at war internally really since the 1960s with the U.S. backing the elite and the military and the paramilitary death squads. And then you had a, the main guerrilla group, the FARC, which uh, signed a peace accord in 2016, which the government is largely honored in the breach. They have killed a lot of ex-combatants of the FARC and they continue to kill social leaders. And this is what Petro's up against. First of all, it was a miracle he was uh, he survived enough to win because he was threatened with death. So was his vice presidential candidate, Francia Marquez, an Afro-Colombian, first Afro-Colombian right. vice president. They campaigned behind bulletproof shields. Oh, my God. Uh, even The Washington Post ran a story on that fact. Um, and... Um, now they're in office, but I mean, they're not out of the woods. They confront a military that is largely, certainly at the top, almost thoroughly against them. Right. And, you know, if you want to talk about another historical figure, Salvador Allende, who, you know, was overthrown in a U.S. backed military coup in 1973, you know, you'd have to say that Allende was in a better position than Petro oh, when he was. Goodness had a couple loyal generals like Letzlier, who was murdered right in 1976 in a car bomb in Washington, D.C. I don't think Petra has one loyal general. And he's going to now he's hired an anti-corruption czar, um, a, a, a guy who's most famous for going after uh, Escobar to now run to be the de de uh, defense minister. And he's going to try to weed these bad people out. But, you know, you're talking about a lot of bad people in the military. 
who are very deeply ensconced with the paramilitaries. I mean, I mean, the truth is what they say is the paramilitaries are really military guys during the day and paramilitaries at night. But of course, as he tries to do that, as he may try to replace generals, put in generals that are loyal to him, you're going to see a backlash from the military, which is very powerful there, which the U.S. supports. You already have, there's a right-wing senator in Colombia. She last week called for a crusade against Petro by the military. And you have people like Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, supporting that type of call. So it's a very dangerous situation. I mean, it's very hopeful. People are very excited uh, that Petro and Marquez are, you know, in the leadership. They've, they've moved very quickly to do some progressive things. I mean, the first thing they did is recognize Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua, which had not had diplomatic relations with Colombia under this President Duque, the outgoing president. He immediately recognized him, immediately appointed ambassadors. He has reopened the border with Venezuela. And I saw just today, he told the Colombian airline company to be prepared to start flying again to Venezuela. I mean, it was insane. Like you could not fly directly from Colombia to Venezuela. They're right next door. And Petro wants to fix that. I mean, these are huge things. Uh, The U.S. is not thrilled about that, to say the least. Uh, But Petro wants to unify his country, wants to bring a true peace to the country. And he wants to unify Latin America, just like Simon Bolivar. That was his dream. Right. 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 Over uh, Spanish colonialism. By the way, he battled exactly 203 years on the day before the inauguration on August 7th this, this year of 2022. And, you know, famously, so the inauguration was held in Plaza Bolivar, which is the big kind of official plaza. You could compare it to the the uh, uh, the mall in Washington, D.C. It's not as big, but it's similar with, you know, the Supreme Court on one side and uh, the presidential palace on the other. Actually, the cathedral, beautiful Catholic cathedral in the middle. And 20,000 people showed up, I mean, body to body, as many people as they could cram in there to the inauguration, which itself was unprecedented. People have not had much to celebrate in terms of the recent inaugurations and they have it largely not showed up, but people yeah. came to this one. And famously, he called for the sword of Bolivar to be brought to him on the stage uh, from the museum. And the Bolivarian Revolution is the revolution of trying to to consolidate and unify and have common interests with all of these Latin American countries. Is that is that right? Somewhat accurate. The first Bolivarian Revolution was first to overthrow Spain, to kick Spain out. Right. And then the dream of Bolivar was to unite countries like Colombia, Venezuela, which, of course, is known as the Bolivarian Republic now. Right. Chavez called it. Well, he didn't call it. I mean, the under the Constitution that the people voted for, it's called the Bolivarian Republic because Bolivar is a very important symbol there. While, while Colombia has the sword of Bolivar, uh, Venezuela has Bolivar's remains, which are uh, kept in a church there. Um, and other contiguous countries. So, uh, but that never happened. That type of unity never came to fruition. But, you know, people like Chavez, like Maduro, and now like Gustavo Petro would like to see that happen. They would like to see. Um, then what's, what's the is a domestic agenda? Uh, what's well, the domestic agenda, first and foremost, is end the war, because the war is not ended. And that means getting rid of the paramilitaries. It also means convincing the one remaining leftist guerrilla group, the ELN, to lay down its arms. By the way, the day he was inaugurated, the ELN reached out to him to talk about doing just that. And some paramilitary groups did as well. So that's number one on his agenda. And the next is to alleviate poverty. And to deal with the horrible inequality in that country. Colombia is one of the most unequal societies in the world. You know, if you look at the, uh, what's that? uh, uh, The Gini. The Gini. Gini. 
uh, coefficient, right? It's yeah. one of the highest there. And so he wants to tax the rich and he, he wants to help these, you know, the vast majority of poor people in that country. I mean, you know, if you go to Bogota, or at least parts of Bogota, you go to Cartagena, the old city, which people do all the time. They go on vacations there. You think, oh, wow, this is, you know, this is a very modern country. And this, you know, parts of Bogota seem like they look like Chicago, you know, but if you start, you know, you go much beyond that, you start to see very poor places, very poor countryside, very poor cities. I'll, you know, one in particular, Quibdo, I visited it. It's up near the Panamanian border. It is an Afro-Colombian city. It doesn't have paved roads. It doesn't have running water. It doesn't have sewage. It's been completely abandoned by the central government. Now, Showing what he wants to do with the country, the, one of the first cities he visited after he was, was inaugurated was Kibdo. And he said, this government's abandoned you, and, and that, that ends now. We're going to take care of you. We're going to get you your you know, infrastructure that you deserve. And, um, and he wants to do that for the poor in that country. And that's an amazing agenda. I mean, you talk about an ambitious agenda. He has a whole 10-point plan he came up with. He wants to, you know, uh, increase women's participation in the economy and politics. In fact, he named his vice president, Francia Marquez, as the minister of gender, I forget what he called it, gender parity or gender equality. So he wants to make it a more equal society, he wants to give voice to the indigenous people, to Afro descendants. These are people which in large part have been ignored at best and persecuted at worst. You know, they, they, they disproportionately represent the displaced peoples, disproportionately represent um, the poor, and they have been disproportionately killed during this war. Uh, again, making Francia Marquez's election as vice president quite incredible. And again, he's made it clear he wants to he wants to give voice to those people and he wants to make them a part of the greater Colombian society. The day before the inauguration, I had a chance to go to actually what was called the indigenous in inauguration. So that was held the day before, also in Bogota in a big park, hundreds of indigenous and Afro-Colombian peoples uh, drove on buses from all over the country to Bogota to essentially give their blessing to Petro and Marquez as the new leaders of the country. They had their own inauguration. Uh, Petro was anointed with oil by one of the indigenous tribes, and both Petro and Marquez showed up to this event. Can you imagine having a parallel indigenous inauguration of a U.S. president and the U.S. president coming and accepting that and saying, I am your president. I, you know, I accept your uh, honor of being your president. I mean, that's it's profound. You know, and what do you, you think know, the chances are that the United States will allow this? That, that this will have an effect to truly change change the country well didn't we I didn't mean, we increase I, sanctions I, right after he got elected Did, or, or was that Venezuela? Colombia, no I mean they've increased sanctions against Nicaragua uh, but not okay. against Colombia okay, okay. They're, they're trying to be careful right now look there's no basis the US has you know to openly oppose him right now I mean he just got elected. No one claims the election was rigged or stolen. I mean, you know, the U.S. has to at least pretend that they support the guy as a democratically elected president. Right. I mean, the U.S. has bragged for decades that Colombia is the, you know, shining light of democracy in Latin America, even, of course, as, you know, human rights leaders are being killed and whatnot. So, you know, they're now kind of painting themselves in a corner. This great democracy has elected someone. They may not like, but again, openly, they can't move against him. Um, what, you know, but I think what they're going to do, as they've done in many other countries, as they do, did in Chile, as they've done in Venezuela, is they 
are going to move behind the scenes to support opposition groups and violent opposition groups to stir up trouble in the country, to force Petro's hands into reacting to that. They did that in Iran, too, with Mossadegh. They will do some things economically. Uh, They'll try to, you know, what what they're probably going to do. I mean, again, while they've ignored all the human rights abuses of the military for decades, what they'll probably do is now when the military does carry out a a human rights abuse, they're going to blame that on Petro and use that against them. Right. I have, uh, I have a I have yeah. change in the subject, but not, you know, I, I'm not as up to speed on all of this as you two are. And I've been reading a lot. And uh, actually, my my son is dating a very young, uh, wonderful young lady that uh, came to uh, from Columbia when she was eight. Her family lives in Brooklyn and they're they're great Colombian family. Uh, but one of the things that I did is I went back and was looking at the press coverage on this. And, and uh, on Democracy Now! did a fairly good job covering the election with uh, Columbia, with Amy Goodman. The other, the other uh, major media w- were just horrible. They were horrible. They, they, they spent more talk, time talking about the opponent's TikTok, use of TikTok to uh, uh, campaign rather than his policies, which are bad policies. Uh, they alluded to the fact that this is kind of a, an ex-terrorist that somehow slipped in. Uh, you know, they they didn't give any. There, there's just this ignorance of America's coverage of Central and Latin America. And I, I, is it is it me or do you see that too? Do you see the disinformation from the New York Times, the other major uh, news organizations, don't do a good job covering this? Well, yeah, I mean, they do. I I would only disagree to say that they do a great job covering it from their, you know, perspective to meet their goal. And that is that they are laying the groundwork to go after this guy. Um, They want to vilify him as they've done every other progressive Latin American leaders. They did to Chavez, to Maduro, to Danny Ortega, to Fidel Castro. And uh, they're going to go hard after him. And again, any misstep that he makes or or that others make that they can pin on him, they're going to they're going to um, uh, highlight those things. Um, So, yeah, of course, I saw that. And it's 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 disturbing, but it's not surprising. That's their job. I mean, they're doing their job. And it's our job to get out other information. I mean, Petro's going to need a lot of solidarity. He's in a very precarious bind. Um, he's incredibly courageous uh, that he would run for president at all and that he would, you know, try to quickly go ahead and carry out progressive policies. And again, quickly start to be friends with Venezuela and Nicaragua and Cuba. I mean, that is the third rail for a uh, right. a Latin American leader. So... Mm-hmm. You told that story in your Venezuela book about, um, I don't know if I can remember it, well, the uh, sending in the aid in the uh, with the tankers or the container ships, sending in public aid and how the, the containers were burned and they blamed Maduro. And uh, I think the gray zone did some good reporting on it and finally definitively said, well, wait a second, uh, these these weren't burned by you know Maduro. They were you know burned by the opposition, and they um, corrected that. So after multiple multiple stories about how horrible this new socialist uh, leader was in Venezuela, so bad that he would literally burn public aid coming in rather than having it come into the country. They finally corrected themselves with one little story in the New York Times, and that was it. <laughs> Blink, you didn't see it. And I don't remember that NPR ever corrected it. They covered the story. No, of course, this is how it goes, right? And CNN was there, by the way. CNN saw exactly what happened. It was clear that they were torched. I, I, I forget how it all happened, but Whatever was done to those trucks was done on the Colombian side of the border. It wasn't even done in Venezuela. It was clearly done from the Colombian side, clearly done to try to 
you know, make Maduro look bad. And again, as the gray zone pointed out, CNN had a vantage point to see that that was true and yet quickly reported that it was the Maduro people who did it. I mean, they just completely lied. And the only reason the press corrected itself is because there were videos that definitively showed what happened. If you didn't have those videos, they would have never corrected it. Um, yeah, this was a very extreme example. I'll give you another extreme example. And I mean, there's many, many. But um, in Colombia, there's an indigenous group. The biggest indigenous group uh, is the YU people in La Guajira, which is a an area which actually uh, crosses from Colombia into Venezuela. And the YU are actually allowed to cross from Colombia into Venezuela and back and forth because that's considered their territory. Well, in the Colombian side, the people there are dying. I mean, they're, they're, thousands of kids have died from malnutrition um, over the years, over recent years. And, and, um, Many, many more will die. No one disputes this. I visited the YU people in that area a few years ago, and it's incredible. I mean, it, it well, and you see very quickly why they're dying, because the, their arid land is getting no water from the river that they have depended on for centuries to survive from. I mean, so they took me to the river which is, I don't know, 20 yards wide or so. There's no water in it. It's completely bone dry, okay? So they can't get water to irrigate their crops. They can't get water to drink. It's a desperate situation. Now, that's the background to this. So John Otis, who I follow pretty close on NPR because he's their Latin American correspondent, and he is the king of disinformation. He has this kind of aw shucks type of delivery but he's really, really bad. So he covered this story. He said, oh, yeah, I want to tell you about these YU people and the, they're dying and they're starving and, and, and this is terrible. And he said, there's really two reasons for this. OK. He said, one, because of the culture of the YU, they have this backwards culture and aren't taking care of their kids and blah, blah, blah. And also he said, number two. Because Venezuela had stopped allowing subsidized food from Venezuela to be brought over to Colombia, to be stolen and brought over to Colombia. So it's the Venezuelans' fault, and it's the YU people's own fault. What he didn't say is the following fact that everyone knows about, that the reason they're dying is because that river is dry, and that river is dry because a major multinational mining company has dammed it and is using all the water for their mining operations. He did not even mention that fact, right? So it's not the mining company's uh, problem. It's not the Colombian government's blame for failing to get them, the, you know, even in spite of the damned river, getting them food and water. No, it's the Venezuelans' fault, and it's the fault of the YU people themselves. I mean, this is incredible propaganda. Right. right. But right. there's if you're a casual listener to something like NPR, you'd have no idea that he just laid a bunch of bull on you. Right. Greg, what do you think about this? How, how pessimistic? How pessimistic are you that our ability to get out reasonable, accurate information ever is going to be effective? And, and I don't know. That's easy. Uh, zero. But my question for Dan is. Uh, there used there there were there were U.S. advisors in Colombia for a long long time stationed in a uh, are there still and U.S. Truth, troops in, in Colombia? Absolutely, and that's again going to be another thing. Now Petro has said nothing about that, as far as I know. He's been very careful. I'm sure he wants those troops gone. I'm sure he wants the advisors gone. I'm sure he wants to get Colombia out of its NATO partnership. Right, Colombia is the only partner of NATO. Uh, south of the border. Um, they even carried out NATO military operations, naval operations in the Pacific side, right? It's NATO is, of course, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, but they were carrying out operations in the Pacific earlier this year. Um, but I don't think that's going to be his first order of business. I think that is a red line. I mean, I think that's where he gets cooed, right? So I think... You know, we'll see how he deals with that. I, and I think, frankly, if it's the smart move 
to maybe live with it for now because the U.S. has depended on Colombia as a major base of operations. They operate out of seven different military bases there. They have this NATO partnership with Colombia. So I don't see Petro moving against that quickly because I do think the U.S. would go would move very quickly to dislodge him, if not kill him. So we will see. We will see um, how that all develops. I mean, it will be a, a hat trick for him to, to deal with that. There's been there's been a. Uh a strong negative turn in the pink tide uh, years ago with Argentina uh, shifting electorally. And of course, Lula being jailed in Brazil um, uh, with, uh, and of yes. course, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and, and so on. So, but now it seems to be swinging again, back the other way. Lula's out of jail. He, he's leading in the polls in Brazil. Uh, Argentina has a new government or had a new government uh, a year or so ago moving in that direction. Chile now has a quote unquote leftist government. How do you see this going? I mean, what's your overall assessment? How do you see developments in Latin America moving forward? There have been setbacks, but there have been returns. In Peru, you have a new, uh, a new administration. Uh, right. they, he claims to be a socialist. AMLO in Mexico has been- And AMLO yeah, in Mexico. It's brand new. So what's brand your overall picture you're drawing from this? What conclusions are you drawing from this? I think Latin America and the Caribbean are going to continue moving left. That doesn't mean there won't be setbacks. There will be, of course, for various reasons. But I think the overall trend and trajectory is going to be towards the left. I think the U.S. cannot stop this from happening. And I do think if Lula becomes president of Brazil later this year, I think that will help solidify the left tide. And why has this happened? I mean, again, I think largely because, again, the U.S., they were, you know, instrumental in the so-called car wash campaign in Brazil, which led to Lula's arrest and, and, and being jailed. He sat in jail during the election that Bolsonaro was elected in. Um, you know, the U.S. has used different machinations to get rid of some of these left-wing leaders, he's, you know, they were behind the coup in Honduras in 2009. Now, of course, the president uh, who was couped in 2009, Manuel Zelaya, his wife is now president. You know, so the U.S. just cannot keep these people down is what it comes to. I think they see daylight. I think they see the chance to start doing what they want, to start getting out of the grip of the United States. And the truth is... You know, one thing that is allowing them to do that is the rise of China. Uh, Even Argentina is now turning towards Russia and China and away from the IMF. Nicaragua is turning hard towards China. You know, they now have a choice. They have other people they can trade with if they're sanctioned. Venezuela, of course, works very closely with China and Iran. Iran's another country that has a lot of well, what's the word that that has a lot of um, um, influence, I guess, in the region, not so much influence, but the, they're turned to quite a bit for help. I, I think Iran has been more critical in helping Venezuela survive the sanctions than any other country. They've helped get their oil industry back online. They've actually delivered fuel to Venezuela. It's quite impressive what Iran's done. Uh, you know, this deserves a whole nother topic, but Iran to me is a very interesting and peculiar country because it is not run by leftists. It's run by, you know, Islamicists, by the mullahs, they're called, by, you know, their supreme leader is a religious leader. It is a theocracy, though it does have a civilian elected government, and it's a bit complex how those two interact with each other. Uh, But nonetheless, they've shown a lot of solidarity with countries like Venezuela and increasingly with Nicaragua now. So and this is why, again, the U.S. is really upset about the rise of countries like China and Iran and Russia getting back on its feet after the collapse of the Soviet Union, because not only because, you know, they're rivals of the U.S., but because they can offer some help to these countries. And I think you're going to see more and more. Uh, countries, you know, reaching out to them 
which, of course, is the main that violates the main tenet of the Monroe Doctrine, which is that no country outside the hemisphere is to have any influence in the region outside the United States. Right. Uh, And that the Monroe Doctrine is still very much in force. You know, under the Monroe Doctrine, Latin America is considered the U.S. backyard. Uh, Biden was nice enough to say, well, it's our front yard. Oh, I guess that's nice. Maybe they water it a little more or something. Um, But it's still the yard, right? We got the house and they got the yard. So, but I, I, you know, I think, I think that's ending. I don't think the U.S. can maintain it. I, you know, again, the, the, the two countries that the West never forgives, the first country that the West never forgave and will not forgive, Cuba. And is totally, no, uh, Haiti. Haiti. Haiti, oh, since Haiti. the revolution, since Toussaint Louverture, the world has never forgiven them for defying the West. And the disaster to Haiti is today is the, is the, is the, uh, is the exemplar of that. And the other, of course, Pat's right, is Cuba. And, right. Uh, they just will not forgive Cuba. And the, the situation well, and Nicaragua. Cuba, They're not going to forgive Nicaragua. Yeah, yeah but Cuba, yeah. Cuba is in the gun sites always. And yeah. that's, that's a country because uh, it defied the United States in such a strong way successfully. And it shows such a different path. All the, all the pink tide, uh, which is very exciting, none of them have, cho- have, have, have chosen the, 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 the uh, direction, the economic direction that Cuba took. And they'll never be forgiven for that. So we we must put our solidarity there. I, what they're going through today, since this devastation in uh, was it in Matanzas, Dan, where with the uh, oil yeah. uh, uh, the oil refineries, oil tanks, is uh, really just another blow. I mean, nature's blow to to an already ugly situation that the United States has created. I mean, it's yeah. solely created by the United States. And under Biden, it's worse. Maybe Biden is going to loosen up a little in terms of the rest of Latin America, but not Cuba. Not uh, Cuba, not Nicaragua. I mean, they keep piling on sanctions on Nicaragua. Maybe Venezuela will loosen up in order to get some oil from yeah, there. Yeah, it's the oil and, issue there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, Venezuela may be able to bargain something there, which shows some power, right? The fact that Biden had to go hat in hand to Venezuela begging for oil shows this is a different world we're in now. Different moment, yes. Take everything they want, like in the past. Um, And that's great. That is how it should be, right? So we're seeing the development of that. You know, in, in preparation for this, again, I, I'm admitting that my ignorance in in this region of the area, but I, I was um, I read the Wikipedia page on Operation Condor. Mm-hmm. This, this is in my what I was in college with this going on. A, a a horrible campaign of CIA state terror where we went in and meddled with these governments. Um and it's now pretty fairly transparent about how horrible we were in our operation in dealing with them. A number of civilian casualties, mining harbors. Tell me, tell me about Operation Condor and how we set the stage between late sixties, you know, seventies for uh, how many decades? It ended what in the eighties. 90s chile it really just ended in some way they just got rid of the pinochet constitution like a year ago i mean they haven't even agreed to a new one yet i mean really i mean obviously the horrible repression ended some time ago but but the impact of it is still being being felt of course because what operation condor was uh was the really the ushering in of the neoliberal economic period. Right. Chicago boys. Yeah. The Chicago boys in the first place it was installed was in Chile in 1973. So this is the new economic order that the U S wanted to impose and they imposed it through brutal fascist. These are real fascist governments, right? Like in Chile where they overthrew a democratically elected president in Salvador Allende, 
They installed this General Pinochet who, you know, he, he'd go look up pictures of him with his big black cape and all. Killed 3,000 Chileans. Tortured probably 30,000. And then helped overthrow these governments, you know, uh, next to him. So then you had, of course, Argentina, which again had a fascist coup in which a fascist, really neo-Nazi junta took over, forcibly disappeared 30,000 people, you know, which included by and the other thing they did. And then they did it with the Catholic Church there. They would, if a leftist woman was captured and she was pregnant they would they would force her to give birth and they'd steal the child from her right this was in fact uh there's an oscar award-winning film which details the theft of these children you know the whole generation of kids grew up they didn't even know who their parents were the original fa original family separation policy yeah no this is an incredible thing that happened in these countries in uruguay paraguay uh, all in the name of, again, bringing in this neoliberal order in which, you know, everything's privatized, in which austerity measures are put in place, the working class is really put down, unions are destroyed. Again, this was fascism. This is what the U.S. used. And we can't forget that. You know, people use this word fascism all the time, and, and we have to understand what it really is. I saw an interesting uh, meme the other day, which I think is accurate. You know, the Soviet Union overthrew Nazi Germany and basically the U.S. absorbed what was left of it uh, and used it is particularly in countries like Argentina, where, you know, people make jokes about the fact that, you know, all these Germans went and moved there, all these Nazis. And they, you know, their philosophy became dominant in these countries in the 70s and 80s. And, and yeah, that is what the face of American capital is, you know, when it has to, when it gets desperate and has to turn to those measures. And in any case, as you know, the neoliberal order was brought, you know, became the order of the day uh, and really gained traction throughout the rest of the world once the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. And of course, Bill Clinton really became the face of ne neoliberalism in the U.S., Tony Blair in, in, in Great Britain. And as you all mentioned, we may be seeing finally the neoliberal order, which again was ushered in beginning in 1973, really, really becoming the dominant system in the 90s. And then, you know, being the dominant system until now, it may be framed, the, yeah. the neoliberal order may be coming to an end i'm not you know I, I i'm not certain i mean the you know we can't underestimate the resilience of of uh american style capitalism and whatnot but i think that it's being challenged in a very very big way you and know, in, in relationship to that uh, greg and i read this book uh the Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order by uh, Gary Gerstle. And, and Greg wrote an absolute wonderful review of this in, on his blog and Marxist Linus today. Yeah, I read it. It's great. It's excellent. Oh, you, you read it too? Yeah. I don't know. What do, you, what do you think about that, Greg? Do you think that, you think that this multi-decade trend is going away not only in the United States, but also in Central America? What do you, what do you think, Greg? Yeah, yeah, I think it is. Uh, the question here is what's going to replace it? I mean, the only, the only uh, candidate that jumped up, of course, was Trumpism. Trumpism mm, mm. rose as an alternative to globalism and the neoliberal order, et cetera, et cetera, the whole story. Mm. And of course, many people um, went for it because of that. But that can't be the option. I mean, that just can't be the legitimate option for this country. That would be a disaster. But nothing's emerging from the Democratic Party, certainly, to, to replace the neoliberal order. No one has the courage to even speak to it. So I'm, I'm somewhat pessimistic in this country. And of course, uh, uh, the, the, the folks in the South, they seem to be much more willing to think new ideas and challenge old ideas than people in this country are um, yeah they're waiting for they're waiting for knights on white horses to come and rescue them from trumpism 
But the other option is to go back to the neoliberal order. So I'm, I'm somewhat pessimistic. Well, um, and one thing, you know, again, we there's a huge discussion to be had on this. But the other thing is the people in Latin America have not fallen, at least yet, knock on wood, for these cultural wars. You know, that no, is not no, no. on there. People are fighting over food, trying to get fed, trying to get jobs, trying to survive. They don't have time for this nonsense, worrying about people's pronouns and whatnot. In the United States and other Western countries, that is what people care about. That, you know, I mean, that is what the left seems to care about. They're not fighting for the poor. They're not fighting to end wars, you know, and Latin America didn't fall for that. That has not bled into Latin America, not yet. And I don't really expect it to in a big way. Um, in part because they have a very different culture um, than the U.S. Of course, some people would argue, a lot of liberals would claim that maybe they have a backwards culture. I think it's quite the opposite. But I think the U.S. is bogged down in this cultural war, not fighting over economic issues, not fighting over issues of war and peace. And I don't see that changing real soon. Obviously, people like us are trying to change that, but it's very difficult. Certainly the liberal intellectual class is no interest in that at all. The idea of of Marxism and of class struggle and even looking at, you know, historical materialism. I mean, just beginning with the idea that we actually look at at reality to begin with (laughs) instead of complete lunacy. Uh, We've moved way away from that, you know, because of postmodernism or whatever. And uh, that intellectual current has destroyed the left in large part. In, well, we were the- we were talking before you came on about that that exact same theme. You know, you have DeSantis is all it's all cultural wars. You know, you're you're right. your trans person's reading your kindergartner's books and he's going to be, you know, you know doing hormone therapy in a, a year or two and 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 it, it unless the left can more articulately express the class issue and bury this cultural issue. I think we're, you know, we're we're not gonna we're not gonna win the argument at all. We're not gonna win the narrative at all. And um, there's so many things that we had a wonderful psychiatrist on two a couple of weeks ago, um, Joanna Moncrete, who was looking at psychiatry from kind of a Marxist perspective, and she was frustrated that people are constantly being medicated as opposed for depression or anxiety or angst, rather than looking at the whole social issues that are creating the malaise in people's lives. You know, she wrote yeah. a very good article on a, a Marxist perspective from this. So, so much common sense, so much common sense, but yeah, it's just not part of our, our narrative. It's not part of CNN, MSNBC, certainly not part of Fox. Fox is all culture all the time, you know, so right. I don't know. Well, it is, again, the, the, the culture of the U.S., which has this incredibly, well, and it comes, of course, from the extreme form of capitalism we have. We have this extreme individualism, and so all problems are seen as individual problems, that individuals can rise above. If you're not rising above it, you're a loser. You know, and again, it's it's that individualism, which also has really influenced how leftism, if you want to call it that, is manifesting itself. Again, it's all about individual identity and not about collective struggle and not right. certainly not about class struggle. Yeah, you know, ex- and- that, that's exactly what she said. If you just have a brain chemistry problem, then it's kind of your problem. If you have society falling apart. And economies falling apart and housing, uh, then, you know, we have to maybe look at it differently than it being your problem. So I don't know. Exactly. And again, I think in Latin America, they have a more collectivist idea of society. Um, And some of that grew out of the indigenous groups, which, frankly, the Spanish were not quite as good as quite as thorough in their genocide against the indigenous peoples there as the U.S. is the, you know, as as the folks were, the Europeans were in in North America. Um, And so those indigenous uh, values also have, you know, had a greater influence in Latin America over the years. You know, I 
I, again, back to Venezuela, when Maduro got in, um, 60% increase in social spending, 44% decrease in poverty, 25% decrease in infant mortality, free college, free university, building up the hospital. And what do, what do we do? We sanction the crap out of them. You know, <laughs> you know, we, we, yeah. well, I, it, it's just, we want to, you need to fail so we can bring our neoliberal corporate uh, folks in and, and get better control of your resources. I mean, what's, what's the problem? That, that we want to make them happy, Pat. We want to make them happy. We want to make them happy consumers. Yeah. I, but why are we so ignorant about this? I well, you're you're not. You're doing uh, you know God's work on all this stuff. But um, I don't know. It's frustrating. It, it, you yeah. have a very thoroughly ideologized society. You know, I mean, and you have it's a very the disinformation machine is very it's very elegant and it's it's very nuanced and it works. You know. Um, People talk about 1984 all the time, you know, which talked about, you know, uh, really more brute force being used against people. That's in the U U.S. That's not it. You know, it, it's more brave new world. I mean, it's more done, frankly, through drugs. Right. <laughs> Everyone's taken some form of drug medication and through uh, a media that is very, very good at very subtly pushing narratives that don't look like censorship, that don't look like propaganda, right? People can see through naked propaganda. And you have Hollywood, of course, which has been the cultural center of the earth uh, for a long, long time. And that's, and that's still true in the U.S., obviously, which is very powerful, though that's becoming less and less true in the world. China's right now has its own cinema india you're seeing iran has a very great cinema now uh again you're now seeing even you the u.s's cultural hegemony being challenged but not within the united states i mean hollywood still really defines you know what the predominant culture is and again it's very elaborate and very effective um and to fight against it is very difficult. I mean, one great example is that movie Top Gun. It's a sequel to Top Gun that came out this year. It's now one of the most profitable films ever. Uh, and it was nothing but a military recruitment film. I mean, literally military, the military went to the theaters and was there recruiting people. They had tables at the, at the showings. I mean, that's what it was. And it, it, it's quite incredible. But people don't see that as such. They see it as entertainment. You know, they're entertaining themselves through uh, army recruitment videos. Yeah. And DeSantis is now using that. So, yeah. Using that. Hey, uh, this has just been so good. I, I, you, you are, you're really doing such good work. I've learned so much from you and I'm, um, I recommend people pick up your books. I'm looking forward to the Nicaragua book. I read the reviews of it so far, and that'll be just exciting. Uh, before you go, tell the story about you meeting Chomsky in MIT. And <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I asked you, I think, off, off the camera last time, have you ever met Chomsky? And you said, yeah, I met him in his office. Tell me the story about that. Well, I was friends with Avi Chomsky at the time, one of his daughters, because we were working on Columbia, South America related issues, and we found each other doing that work. And I went to visit her and, and uh, at some point, and I, I'm very careful with people who have famous parents, you know, you don't want to reduce them to their parents. So I said, hey, Avi, if there's any chance, you know, I could go meet you. That'd be kind of cool. She said, sure, sure, we'll do it. So she brought me over to see Noam Chomsky. And it was great. I mean, look, he's an interesting guy. He, the guy lives like a monk. You know, he sat there. He said, do you mind if I eat my lunch? And he pulled out a untoasted bagel with American cheese that he ate in front of me. But the interesting thing is that on his wall, he had, he had one poster on his wall. And he said, I oftentimes, he said, this is like a Rorschach test for people. Everyone who comes in or I say who's on that poster. He says, I know a lot about you. If you know who they are, you don't. And it was Oscar Romero and the six Jesuits who were killed in El Salvador. 
And it's very interesting, you know, and he talks a lot about those people, talks a lot about liberation theology. And of course, this is, you know, a Jewish man who grew up on a kibbutz. And he's very fascinated with uh, with the liberation church and the persecution of it. And I found that very interesting. That was the one poster on his pretty austere walls. But he's a very nice man and his kids love him, which says the world to me, too. There you go. There you go. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I don't agree with Chomsky on everything. And I, I have some disagreements with him on a lot of things, but I think he is a decent human being. And I think he's got a lot of important things to say. So there you well, go. Greg and I are pissed off at him because we were trying to get him on a podcast and he, he w- didn't respond. So we'll I'll keep at that. So okay. and he's getting old. He's getting old now. I know he is. He is. So. I- it that'd be great any final thoughts greg no no i think uh, we covered a lot of territory it's always a pleasure to be with dan uh, always a pleasure to be with you this is i'm glad we did it i appreciate you having me on really write right. a book about cuba okay i'll put that on my list <laughs> good good okay. well, thank you so much thank you cheers be well